Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm feeling better. I finally got rid of that cough. I'm not hacking and gagging and coughing up my lungs, so I'm feeling really good about this show. I'm excited about this one, man. Not only are you back in action, but we've got Sting's 1996. One of the most important stories in WCW history, at least during your run, when we go from the the cool, colorful Sting to the more dark, black and white, jaded Sting, the Crow Sting, if you will. We're going to talk about Sting in 1996, and I guess we should start at the beginning. You know, Sting has sort of been called the franchise of WCW because even when other guys, even like Ric Flair, would leave and go to the WWF, Sting was there the whole time. And he was almost like WCW's answer to Hulk Hogan, the white meat baby face. But then Hogan comes to town in 1994 and then so does Randy Savage. And that seems to present a unique set of challenges for Sting because he's no longer the top baby face. So the top guy, but not necessarily the face of the company anymore. Is that fair to say? Sure it is. It's accurate. So let's talk about what we're doing as we sort of wind up 95 and cruise on into 96 sting is a part of world championship wrestling's world cup of wrestling. It's a seven match series where you've got seven wrestlers or wrestlers from uh, new Japan and WCW all competing. And ultimately sting beats Sasaki in the seventh and deciding match to win it for WCW. This new Japan like relationship is something that I don't think really gets talked about enough because of course, everybody is talking about new Japan right now. They're sort of in vogue. What do you remember about this world cup of wrestling, this seven match series? Well, I mean, this, this really was <clears throat> the height of our relationship with new, with new Japan. I think, uh, certainly it, it extended into 97 and 98, but this is when uh, it really kind of reached its peak. And going back to what you said earlier about, you know, Sting was the franchise and then Hulk came in and Randy came in. I think it's worth noting before we go too far that I think that's one of the things that, at least in my mind, particularly now looking back, I may not have as, have appreciated it as much then, you know, in the moment, during the time as I do now. But in thinking about, you know, this episode and thinking a lot about Sting and, you know, the things I admire about him, the challenges we had with him and all that, one of the things that, you know, stands out to me so much is that he was the ultimate team player. He was one of the few guys um, that really was completely supportive of bringing he – was ex- he wasn't supportive. He was excited that Hulk Hogan was coming to WCW. He was excited that Randy Savage was coming into WCW. He, 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 he was so apolitical in that regard in a, in an era, in an era where everybody was worried about their spot or, you know, all of a sudden the spotlight, you know, going from, from them to somebody else and what that meant to them and their future. Sting broke the mold in that regard. He just never had any of that. He just, he just, he just, he just, always so supportive in and like i said not just supportive but excited about the prospect because i think he was mature enough and confident enough more confident than anything to know that all it meant to him was greater opportunity having great matches with hulk hogan is a great opportunity for stinger was having great matches with the macho man randy savage was a great opportunity for 
for Sting. He was one of those wrestlers that was smart enough to realize it wasn't a zero-sum game and that, you know, bigger names, bigger spotlight, bigger opportunities meant, you know, better opportunities for everyone. And I just want to make that really clear going into this podcast that that was the one, I think, super admirable quality about Steve compared to almost everybody else. Never had a bad word to say about anybody, particularly, you know, the bigger names coming in. Add Roddy Piper to that list as well. Very supportive of all that. So going back to your original question, you know, I mean, the World Cup of Wrestling was just another, not just another, I don't mean to minimize it, but it was at the height, as I said, of the New Japan Pro Wrestling relationship. And it was another effort that we were making to be viewed as an international company, not just, you know, a powerful domestic wrestling company, but we wanted to be looked at as the most powerful wrestling company in the world. And the only way to do that is to, you know, play on an international level. And that's what the new Japan relationship was really all about here. Domestically, he's kicking the year off with his buddy Lex Luger as his tag team partner. And they're defeating the super assassins, which is really just the powers of pain warlord and barbarian. The following week, he picks up a win over DDP. And then around the middle of the month, he challenges Ric Flair for the world title. Uh, we've got Jimmy Hart and Luger, uh, and they're sort of struggling to get mega, the, the megaphone in the corner. And all of a sudden, Sting hits Rick with the Stinger Splash in the same corner. And Lex either accidentally or on purpose hits Sting with it. This allows Rick to put Sting in the figure four. And Sting is pinned here. And this is a pretty interesting storyline. Sting is always been the baby face up until this point, but Lex has teetered back and forth between being the good guy and the bad guy, but they remained friends and they were teaming off in here. What's the story you're trying to tell with sting and Lex Luger and behind the scenes, how are they getting along at, at this time? Well, they're getting along great. You know, they, they, they were, you know, best of friends. They were business partners. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people know it, but maybe some don't, they owned a gym called main event fitness, uh, together in Atlanta. So they not only worked together in WCW, but they were business partners as well. And, and, and the, you know, from what I saw and what I knew, probably the best of friends. Um, so they got along together really well. As far as the story we were trying to tell, I think it was a, you know, obviously we're t we wanted to tell the Sting Flair story, um, but we wanted to lay some groundwork so that we could pivot to or include Lex in that story if need be. I guess we should mention here that the next week we see Sting and Lex Luger actually beat Harlem Heat to win the world tag team titles. And despite Sting being in the company like eight years, this is really his first run with the world tag team titles. And that makes him, I guess you might call it the first WCW Grand Slam champion. Maybe he'd been a world champion, a U.S. champion, a TV champion, and now a tag champ. But in this match where they get the win, Jimmy Hart hands Lex Luger some brass knuckles that he uses on Booker T. And of course, Sting's not looking when that happens. It's sort of an interesting little storyline, an interesting twist. And you guys are switching Sting's look up a little bit here as well. I know people are anxious for us to talk about the crow, but that happens later in the year. For years and years, Sting had been the blonde, flat top surfer dude. But now he's starting to grow his hair out a little bit, and it's his natural color, the darker color. Is that a WCW decision? Is that a Sting decision? That was a Sting decision that you know I was supportive of. And I'm not a wrestler. You know, I wasn't a wrestler. I guess I was a character to a degree. But 
as a character and a performer, you, you want to keep your act fresh. You know, you don't want to get so locked into a character that never changes that it becomes stale. And I think any character is looking for ways to kind of evolve, whether it's in their promos, whether it's in their the ring attire, you know, their look and so forth. And I think because of the NWO, because of the evolution of the way we were telling stories, the, the type of action that was taking place in the ring, so much backstage stuff going on, the reality that we were – uh, I think probably more the reality that we were integrating into our stories, at least some of them, if not all of them. I think Sting was feeling the pressure to kind of evolve a little bit with the company and the, the new the new way we were presenting things. And I think that was his way of kind of evolving as a character a little bit. And, you know, something that I can relate to <laughs> is it, it gets tiresome, you know, to dye your hair all the time. It's one of the reasons why I couldn't wait, you know, to, to, to get into a, a match where I had to shave my head so I could just quit painting my hair you know, every, every week or every 10 days. So I think that was part of it with Steve as well. I think it was a combination of wanting to change up his look and evolve and just he got really tired of, you know, peroxide in that hair every week. Storyline-wise, the guys are going to find themselves being challenged by the Road Warriors. And Lex says he doesn't want to defend the belt against the Warriors, but Sting's agreeing. And Lex is saying at first he doesn't want to re-injure Animal so soon. And he also says they haven't been around in years. So American Males and State Patrol and the Harlem Heat, they all deserve title shots first. So you see sort of where the story is going. Uh, Let's fast forward to the February 5th Nitro We've got an interesting match here and it's interesting because it's at the Lakeland civic center and the fucking power goes out for several minutes during the match. And you would sort of joke on air later that maybe the WWF had something to do with this, but we've never talked about what really happened. How did the power go out? It was just a power surge. No, I knew that. I mean, I knew that, you know, five or six days after the fact, you know, once we heard from the building and they did their own investigation and all that, but it was, it was a power surge. You know, it's not uncommon in Florida, um, to, to have heavy rains and thunderstorms. And evidently that was the case. And there was just a power surge and it, it jammed us up when I did blame it on WWE. And I think they bitched about it pretty heavily in the lawsuit. They, I did, they pointed yeah. that out. Yeah. You know, that I was defaming them and accusing them of things they didn't do and furthering damage, further damaging the image or attempting to the WWF and all that kind of horseshit. So, yeah, they took it very seriously, but, you know, it was a joke. Chat me up about the Road Warriors. You know, they're coming back into the company here. Of course, 10 years before this, they were the biggest act around. When they come back here, though, how are they to deal with? Were they cool with, um, contracts and finishes, you know, the rumor and innuendo is they could be difficult to deal with at times. Um, Hawk a little more so than animal, but they were both, I get, you know, I get along with, I got along with both of them pretty well. They were, uh, yeah, you know, how do you judge it? I, I, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if 10 is really super easy to get along with, I would say they were a seven or an eight every once in a while. Look, most of the guys, when they did have an issue, and I think the road warriors probably as much as anybody would fit into this kind of classification or category is they just had to understand it. You know, if we're going to do this, if you're asking us to do this, okay, but why, What's the logic behind it? What's the story? What's our motivation? And where's it going? Because nobody wants to go out and just blindly take direction 
without knowing at least that there was some thought given to it. And the more successful guys were, the more experience they had working in different companies and in different situations with different, you know, writers or producers or bookers, if you want to call them that, um, the more calculated they were and the more they wanted to understand. But understanding and bitching are two different things. So I never really had an issue explaining why. I preferred to explain why because it helped explain the story and might possibly better explain how the match could be laid out to better fit a story if the talent really understood the how and the why of it. So I never took them questioning or having an issue with a particular aspect of a, of a finish or a matchup as long as it was done constructively and the road warriors did it constructively. I mean, I, there were Minneapolis guys, you know, I didn't work with them in the AWA. They were gone before I got there, but again, you know, they hung out, we had a lot, so many mutual friends. So it, it was a little bit of a different relationship. Again, I don't want to paint the picture that we were buddies because we weren't, but, you know, Rick Rude, Kurt Hennig, you know, they came up in the AWA just like I did. We just knew so many of the fr- same friends, John John Nord, Wayne Bloom, you know, Mike Enos. We were all kind of in the same neighborhood, so to speak. So there was a little bit of a different relationship as a result of that. Let's talk about Super Brawl. This is an interesting show because you've got Sting and Lex working two tag matches here, once against the Harlem Heat with the idea that the winners are going to face the Road Warriors. So Sting and Lex get a win there, and then they go on to do a double countout with the Road Warriors in about 14 minutes, and Meltzer just murdered that match. He says, the Warriors, in the guise of wanting the titles, wrestled scientifically, which needless to say is not their forte. Actually, I can't figure out what exactly is their forte. Since they're legends of the 80s, the crowd is really into them when they come out, but their matches stink. All kinds of missed moves, capped off with a horrible finish, Negative one star. Do you remember this stinker? I do not. Not going to lie. I'd have to go back and watch it. Um, sure. I can understand it based on, you know, Melzer's reporting of it. If they wrestled a match that was a, you know, a more of a Japanese style match or a technical style match, that's not, there wasn't their forte. You know, I'll take a little bit of an exception to what, you know, Melzer said. They were known for being hard hitting you know, big spot kind of guys, power spot kind of guys, but you know, they weren't, you know, (laughs) single leg takedown (laughs) type guys, you know, they were, they're not going to be doing, you know, back suplexes and things like that. So if they tried to do that, I can understand why the audience didn't like it, including Dave on February 14th, Sting and Lex Luger beat the public enemy. Of course, most people, myself included really associate the public enemy with ECW, but they got a lot more eyeballs in WCW. Chat me up here about signing the public enemy. Cause that doesn't seem like an Eric Bischoff signing. No, it wasn't. But again, I wasn't the only one. I mean, I was signing people. I was approving those, um, acquisitions, if you will. But, you know, Terry Taylor, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Mike Graham from time to time, Greg Gagne from time to time, you know, other people would look at talent and make the suggestion. And if there was a, you know, if it was a consensus opinion, if everybody felt strongly about it, uh, and there was room in the budget and it made sense, um, we'd bring them in. 
and public enemy enemy was one of those people. I didn't, you know, I, I know this always is controversial and people are just never going to believe what I have to say. And, you know, I don't really give two shits, but in 96, you know, ECW didn't have national television. They weren't on TNN. They were on at two o'clock in the fucking morning on a television station that, you know, nobody ever watched anyway, uh, even in prime time. And it just wasn't available to me. So there was a lot of talent like Public Enemy and others that I didn't even know who they were till they got to WCW. And Public Enemy was one of the, one of those uh, tag teams. But they got there and they were, you know, they were easy to work with. Uh, I got along with them pretty well. Uh, they worked really hard. They were easy to work with. They didn't bring a lot of baggage with them um, necessarily other than drug habits. But um, beyond that, you know, they they were relatively easy to work with. Not too long after this, we see Sting uh, putting the giant over on a bunch of house shows and then primetime wrestling hits. We've got Sting and Luger again against the Nasty Boys and the Nasty Boys are actually becoming more and more heels here. Um, and we're sort of flip-flopping back and forth with the way you guys are using Sting. As I said, he's mostly a tag on television, but he's doing a lot of singles on house shows. But then there is the February 26th Nitro where we see Sting beat Big Bubba Rogers. And that sets up uh, a little bit of a, an interview where Sting and Lex finally have an agreement with the Road Warriors to do a Chicago street fight at the uncensored pay-per-view. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the uncensored show that I'm sure we're going to cover long form sometime. Chat me up. What do you remember? March 24th, Tupelo, Mississippi, uh, 9,000 fans here, roughly a hundred shy of capacity. And the match that seems like it lasts forever is sting and Booker T taking on the road warriors. And they go nearly 30 minutes in a Chicago street fight. It probably elevates Booker T a little bit because it is a, a pretty prime time match. And he had just been doing the Harlem heat thing, but these are all top guys. Meltzer didn't hate it. He gave it three and a half stars. What do you remember about it? First of all, I hate gimmick matches. Anybody that's ever worked with me knows that. Um, just personally, I also know, uh, or knew then, and I know now my, I still hate him by the way. But just because I didn't like him didn't mean other people didn't like him. So I, I, I went into those types of matches grudgingly um, and reluctantly because I just didn't understand the appeal of it. And I really didn't think they made anybody look good. You know, there were certain people like the World Warriors, for example, kind of made sense because of their style and what they were known for going back to our earlier comments. Um, they were, they were not technical wrestlers, you know, the nasty boys, same thing. Th those are the kinds of guys that, you know, a, a, a street fight or a no holds barred match, whatever you, whatever you want to call it kind of works for them. But I didn't like seeing sting in a match like that. I just, I didn't, I didn't think it made him look good. I guess we should mention here. The reason Booker T is in is because. Lex Luger interfered, trying to help sting in his world title match on Saturday night against sting, but he accidentally causes a DQ. There's a huge blow up about, um, Lex having Jimmy Hart as a manager. And ultimately Jimmy Hart on March 6th would pull Luger out of the street fight and put him into the doomsday cage match. And Luger's getting mad. 
uh, at Jimmy because he says that Sting is his friend, but he still abandoned him. So they're looking for an opponent or another tag team partner, and it's Booker T. Why was Booker T the guy here? And what was the story you're trying to tell with pulling Luger out of the tag team match? Well, I think the the story with Luger and Sting, and I think it was a slow build and a slow burn, was to to get them on opposite sides of the equation, just not doing it quickly. Um, it was a slow burn, and we used Jimmy. Uh, as as you lay it out to me, and I'm remembering back on it now, it's it's unfortunate, you know, because again, Jimmy didn't have that kind of heat. Everybody loved Jimmy Hart. That was the problem with Jimmy in that kind of a role where you start to put or try to put heat on him. That worked 10 years earlier. But by this time, Jimmy had spent so much time around Hulk. Um, Jimmy had been around for so long. There's a certain point, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, when, when wrestlers have been around a decade or more, I don't care if they're trying to be heels or not, once you've been around that long, <clears throat> the audience is going to like you no matter what you do. And, you know, that was one of the problems that we had or challenges we had with Ric Flair. Um, Ric Flair, and I know I'm going the wrong way around the block here, and it's kind of weird comparing Ric Flair to Jimmy Hart, and I don't mean to do that. But the the psychology is the same. Rick had been around for so long, even though he was working as a heel, the audience liked him. They loved Rick. He would do. He was doing heel shit, and they loved Rick. Um, his promos, you know, he could get heat doing a promo, but by the time he got in the ring, he was Ric Flair. And it was, you know, I used to joke, you know, Ric Flair could, you know, set puppies on fire and stomp them out all the way to the ring, and people would cheer him once he got to the middle of the ring. I mean, it was just really hard to get heat on Rick. And Jimmy Hart was kind of in that same category in to a degree a lesser degree but to a degree so using jimmy in a role like that as an adjunct to try to get heat on lex uh was pretty ineffective but that was that's what we did for better or worse or what we were trying to do for better or worse as far as you know why booker uh we all recognize booker was a great talent he needed to be elevated he he he, he was great on the mic he was great at the ring he was easy to work with. The audience loved him. Um, it was just a way to elevate him. Nothing more, nothing less. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload... Anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. I guess we should mention the very next night, uh, Sting and Lex are back together and they beat the American males. On the April 1st Nitro, the Giant, who had just turned face seven days earlier in a great turn, is now a heel again. And he's supposed to team with Sting to take on the Harlem Heat. But Jimmy Hart pays off the heat to walk out, and then the Giant turns on Sting. I hope this is as uh, easy to follow as it is for me. They wrestle for two minutes and 41 seconds before Luger saves Sting for the DQ, and then Hart tells Luger that he'd be sorry. As we fast forward, you probably have an idea where this is going. Sting and Luger beat Flair and Giant by DQ, and there's a spot where uh, Sting has Flair in the Scorpion, and Woman throws coffee in Sting's eyes, which I guess is kind of fun. Uh, a couple of weeks later, they go to a no DQ or a no decision rather with Flair and Giant, and the rules sort of don't make any sense here. Surprise! It's explained that the tag titles are at stake, and the TV title, and the world title. But that Sting could also pin Luger or the Giant, and Giant could pin Flair and win the titles. What the fuck is this? A mess. A giant clusterfuck of a mess. I mean, as you're you're laying that out to me, now I've been around the business for 30 years. I can think in shorthand when I hear this kind of stuff. But I'm trying to follow along with this and imagine what anybody was thinking, including myself. Um, when this was approved and I'm going, what in the world, this was a mess. I mean, you'd have to have three assistants and a calculator to try to keep up with that storyline. That's how ridiculous that was. Now I want to take this opportunity to apologize. for (laughs) (laughs) I'm really, I'm sorry to everyone who happened to be watching <laughs> that story arc and that clusterfuck. I, I, I really do. At, at this moment, in real time, I feel horrible. Uh, the finish came when a woman gives Flair the coffee. He tries to throw it at Sting or Luger, but it goes in the giant's eyes instead. So Sting and Lex just leave the ring. I uh, mean, because there's nothing like a hot cup of coffee to a 450-pound guy's face. I mean, you're seven foot tall, 450 pounds, can literally pick up, pick up the back end of a Volvo and move it. And, but, man, if you get hit with a cup of coffee, you're down. You're just down, especially if a woman throws it. You're down. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Some of this early 96 stuff, maybe not the best stuff in the world. Uh, on the April 29th Nitro, we see Sting and Luger beat the Harlem Heat in a tag title match, and Jimmy Hart throws in the towel for the Heat against their wishes. Jimmy Hart is a featured spot of 1996 so far, is he not? Oh, God. I can only apologize once for show. Yeah, I understand. It, it's just, it, it, it's real. This is painful for me. I can only imagine what people watching at home felt like because 20 years later, it's painful for me to listen to this. Yeah, it's kind of rough. I'll take you that. Let's get to uh, Slamboree. This is May 19th in Baton Rouge. Once again, Sting finds himself in the main event spot. This time he's challenging the giant for the world title. And it's been a while since he's got a title match like this on pay-per-view. 
The giant gets the win though. He retains in about 11 minutes and Meltzer didn't hate it, man. He says this had great crowd heat and excellent psychology and, uh, he didn't dump on it. He gave it three and a quarter stars. He says that, um, good storyline and better action than you'd have any right to expect given giants level of experience and that the giant had never been known to carry people. Well, so I guess that's, uh, that's quite a compliment here because he's been known to be pretty critical of Paul white, but he put him over here three and a quarter stars. Do you remember this one? I do remember it. And I think, you know, and it's, you know, gracious of Dave to give Paul credit for that, but the, the credit really belonged to Steve. Sure. I mean, Steve made that match and, you know, hats off to, to Paul for listening and cooperating and, and doing the best that, you know, cause Paul was amazingly athletic. There was nothing that you could kind of lay out or explain to Paul or ask him to do that he was incapable of doing the, the challenge that we had with Paul and the, the challenge that Paul had himself was much like Bill Goldberg in the beginning of Goldberg's career when he, when Bill was still green, you know, kind of fresh meat right out of the power plant and everybody knew that Bill was going to be the guy eventually. And it was pretty apparent. And before you knew it, three, four, five, six guys are in his ear, pulling him in a lot of different directions. Some of them because they were trying to help him legitimately. And some of them because mm, they had their own agenda and, you know, keeping the guy off balance and stirring him up and making him insecure might have helped, you know, fulfill that agenda. And that was just the politics in the way of the world in the locker room. It's just a fact. And Paul was to a lesser degree than Bill because there wasn't as much emphasis on Paul as there was a, 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 a Bill, at least not initially. But Paul was another guy that was being he, – he didn't really have any experience of his own. He couldn't listen to two or three or four different opinions and based on his own experience make a decision. He, he, he had a hard time with that. So when people, certain people were telling him, no, you got to sell more. And other people were telling him, no, you're a giant. You can't sell it all. And Paul would, would often be stuck in the middle of some of that advice and direction, whether it came from agents or, you know, talent that he respected or whatever. Um, so if there were issues with Paul, it really wasn't as much Paul as it was poor leadership and poor management. And, and the people around him and, and Paul being, I don't want to say immature in a derisive way, but he was very, very young and just didn't have a lot of experience. So he was insecure about certain things that led to awkward matches and poor decisions in the ring more than anything, not because of his physical abilities or lack thereof. But I think in this particular match, there was a great level of trust between Steve and Paul. And that's one of the reasons that match worked out so well, but I would have to give the majority of the credit to Steve. The next night sting and Luger beat the faces of fear. But what really matters is on May 27th sting and Scott Steiner would go to a double DQ. And the reason that's notable is this is the episode where we saw the debut of Scott Hall at this point, has you already had a conversation with sting about what this invasion angle may look like, or is that something you were still putting together with the other talent? Literally, it was still coming together in my head at this point. I had a really, really rough idea, but on this particular night, and I remember it because A, it was my birthday, and B, it was Scott's uh, debut, and I actually picked Scott Hall up from the, the hotel. We've covered this before. 
Um, but I had picked Scott up to kind of get a feel for where his head was at. So th- that whole Nitro is still very much a vivid memory um, for me. But um, the idea, the NWO idea was generally I had it down. I wasn't convinced that the third man mystery was going to be such a prominent part of that storyline. That didn't really happen until the second week when Nash came out. And that's when I, I was really convinced that that third man had to be a, a prominent because I knew we had momentum. So to answer your question, I'm sorry. Um, no, I, the third man had not been something I'd given a lot of thought to. And I certainly didn't discuss it with anybody, including sting at that point. The world peace festival happened on June 1st and giant would beat the sting, the stinger there in Los Angeles. A couple of days later on, um, nitro for the world tag team titles, sting and Lex would go to a no contest with the Steiners because the giant came down and choke slam Rick on the floor. And at the end of the show, this is what's most notable about that episode. Scott Hall comes back out this time to the announcer's table to confront you and sting comes to interrupt him. And they're talking about how Hall wanted you guys to get three guys together. And Sting told Hall that he still doesn't have anybody with him. And of course, he says, You're in the jungle, baby. This is WCW, the toothpick in the face. And then there's a little bit of physicality. You move out of the way, and Sting slaps Hall. Pretty famous moment in Nitro history here. We're really starting to heat up the NWO angle, and we keep it going when on June 10th, we see the debut of Kevin Nash on this show. Sting was pulling double duty. He beat Ming and he also had a tag match. Um, of course with Lex against flair and Arn, another giant interference, more DQs at this point, as we're cruising towards the great American bash, we've got Kevin Nash. We've got Scott hall. Where does Sting think he's going to fit in storyline wise at this point? By that point, I'm talking to Sting about being the third guy. Mostly because of the scene that you described. Um, again, it wasn't something that I had considered in great detail. I mean, I knew there was, because we knew there had to be a third guy. I knew it was going to, to be a part of the storyline. I just didn't realize on May 27th of 96 how important it could be or or should be. But after that scene in particular with Steve, and certainly, you know, feeling the crowd, um, by that time I'm talking to Sting about being the third guy. Let's get to the great American bash. June 16th sting would beat Steven Regal with the scorpion in 16 and a half minutes, three and a half stars. And man, Meltzer cannot put over Regal enough. He says, this guy's probably the most complete performer in the company. Uh, what'd you think of the match? It is a bit odd for sting to be in. He doesn't seem to have any sort of issue with Regal, but it is a good match. So we can't fuss too much. What's the thinking here? Well, there wasn't a lot of storyline there. We were evolving into something much bigger at that point, but you still had to have Sting, you know, on the card. He was still one of our top draws, and that that match was cold, meaning it didn't have a storyline behind it. There was not a hot angle behind it, but sometimes you need to do that, and it's also a way to elevate Regal. Um, Regal was a great hand. I mean, I, I really liked Steve a lot from from the very beginning. Um, his interviews. Um, I thought they were fantastic. It's my kind of interview, my kind of character. But at 
you know, by 96, that, that was the one, uh, that was the one weakness at that point with Steve. Uh, his interviews just weren't connecting with the audience, but his ring work was phenomenal. Do you think that what sting lacked maybe in promo skills, he just made up with charisma, you know, flair has often talked about how sting really had no idea what he was doing on promos when he first came into Crockett, but he would just deliver it with such excitement, just the big scream and beating his chest. And obviously he had a cool look with the blonde hair and the rat tail and you know, the, the face paint and the bright colors, he just had this charisma. Was that your experience too? Like he didn't necessarily have a promo put together, but he knew how to go out there and just get people excited. But you could, yes, to answer your question, but you could also say the same. I mean, look at the ultimate warrior. People loved that character. They loved, you know, they loved his problem. They couldn't understand the lick of what he said because very little of it made any sense at all, but it was so colorful and he had so much energy that people just got with it. It was larger than life. It was electric. Um, the same could probably be said to a certain extent to Randy Savage, you know, going back, I've been over the last couple of weeks and doing watch alongs and, you know, we did the Randy Savage episode a couple of weeks ago. I, I spent a lot of time looking at Randy Savage promos and, and fans who listen to the show, you know, send you clips of things on Twitter that Randy has done in the past. And, uh, I went back and, and watched many of them. Some of them I had never seen before. And a lot of Randy's promos didn't really make a lot of sense, but they were entertaining because of his charisma and his character. I mean, some of them did. Some of them were very story. Many of them had were very storyline driven, but some of them were just out there. Randy being religious, Randy being Randy. And I think Sting did have a lot of that. You know, he wasn't a storyteller. You know, he wouldn't, he, when he would do a promo, and again, this was at a time, context is king. This was at a time when there was, promos weren't heavily scripted. You know, you, you, we, we relied on our talent to really go out and understand who they were wrestling next week or next month or who their issue was with and more or less improv it. And I would say, you know, Sting was on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, from a storytelling kind of structural aspect, you know, in terms of a three act storyline in his promo, he was probably a six or a seven, but when it came to his energy and his passion and his excitement, he was off the charts. He was a 10.5 and it made up for it. So I think Rick is, Rick's probably right about that. Let's talk about what's next. Of course, we're on our way to bash at the beach, but before we get there, I want to cover June 24th because the Harlem heat win the tag titles in a triangle match over sting and Luger and the Steiners when Holland Nash come out with baseball bats and during all the chaos Booker T schoolboys Lex Luger for the win. And that means Lex and sting are no longer the tag champs. What do you remember? This is a pretty famous skit because Kevin Nash would say years later, you made your whole locker room look like dog shit. We held everybody off with two guys and baseball bats. What say you, what did you think of the baseball bat angle and, and the way to use this as a distraction for a schoolboy tag title loss? You know, Kevin wasn't wrong, but it also set the stage for what, again, have to remember, I'm talking to Sting 
about being the third guy. I, I was also talking to Hogan at that time about being the third guy. I wasn't 100% confident that I had Hogan. I wouldn't be 100% confident uh, uh, until about two hours before he actually came out and turned heel at the Bastion of the Beach. So I had to have dry powder. And from a storyline perspective, that gave Sting an out. So that if I needed to be, if I needed Sting to be the third guy, there was a follow-up promo. There was something that we could point to. Sting should have been there, could have been there. He could have seen what was going on. But, you know, Kevin's point, you know, making the entire, you know, locker room look bad, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I, I honestly don't agree with that. <clears throat> I understand why he says it, and there's a certain amount of logic to it, but I don't think the audience, if you would have polled anybody, would have said, oh, man, I can't believe it. The entire WCW locker room looks bad. That's a wrestling point of view. That's a wrestler's point of view. It's not necessarily an audience's point of view. Sometimes the audience doesn't react the way wrestlers, you know, when they analyze something to death, particularly when they're wanting to analyze it for their own benefit or from their own point of view for whatever reason. Um it, they don't always connect. I don't think anybody thought that. I don't think the entire locker room looked bad. Right. I think it looked intense. I think it made Hollow Nash look devastating. I think it raised the stakes in an, in an, an incredible way that obviously worked very, very well in hindsight. So while I understand the logic of the criticism, I don't agree with it. I should be a politician. Fuck. I think you kind of are. Let's talk about bash at the beach. Uh, we know the main event, Randy Savage, Lex Luger and sting are going to take on Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and a mystery partner. We've covered this extensively in our archives, which are available now at 83 weeks.com. The match gets three stars. Luger does a stretcher job here after a stinger splash. Sting was supposed to be the backup plan. He decides you don't really need him. He's receptive, but not necessarily enthusiastic, but receptive. Everybody can see the, the power in the storyline. And the next night sting gets a win over Arn Anderson. And after the match, Oakland comes out to the ring and interview sting. And he cut one of, if not the very best of his career. What do you remember about the sting promo the night after bash at the beach? I think a lot of people just miss it. Sting was pretty passionate, and I want to back up just a little bit. Um, Steve, I, I don't know that he was disappointed that we went with Hogan. I really don't. I think Steve was ready. Um, I think part of Steve, you know, I mean, I talked to him a lot about it. Now, I, I had, by this time, I had gotten to be pretty good friends with Steve. Um, I could have really really personal conversations about things. There was no business tension. It wasn't ever financial. It was never about that with Steve. It was really about what was best for his career. What was best for WCW. He put WCW in front of himself, uh, probably as much or more than anybody. And I think Steve was excited at the prospect of turning heel because he sensed that Things were changing. You know, the wrestling audience's uh, appetite was changing. The way we were telling stories was changing. 
And I know Steve was – half of him was really excited to change with it. But I think the other part of him was pretty comfortable being that baby face, being that guy that everybody knew you could always go back to. It was kind of like Ric Flair. Steve's, Steve's a really smart guy. He saw, you know, Ric Flair's career and how many times people tried to move on without Ric Flair. And Ric Flair it was just always there. He was always the guy you could go to. And you, you could always depend on Ric to, 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 to get a rating or pay-per-view. Or if you needed a great storyline, you knew you could go to Ric Flair to get it. And I think Steve knew that he could be that guy and was very comfortable in that role. So I think part of him wanted to do it, but I think part of him was relieved. When it was Hogan, I don't think there was any resentment or disappointment, really. I think there was, if anything, I've never asked him about this. I, I probably should at some point. But I don't think there was that much disappointment. I think, if anything, there was probably more relief. And I think the storyline that you saw with Steve and Sting and Arn was more a reflection of kind of a renewed, invigorated um, Steve Borden. Sting the character because it was pretty obvious at that point to everybody. The handwriting was on the wall. The NWO was hot. Everybody knew it was going to be the NWO versus WCW. The premise of that storyline was, you know, so big and so bold. Anybody, you know, could see it. And Steve knew that he was going to be front and center in that story. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So they start a new Japan tour in July, right after that. And I think this is the tour where Randy Savage and Hawk get into a fight. You remember that? I remember it happening, but it was eh, just one of those things. Sure. We got lots of uh, matches on house shows with Hall and Nash beating Sting and Luger by DQ. And they started running commercials during this time on Saturday night, where there would be a commercial for the NWO and it would say, you know, paid for by the NWO. The July 29th episode of Nitro, we've just recently covered. That's the one where the ambulance was called the lawn dart of Ray Mysterio Jr. You can hear all about that in the archives, but Sting played a part in that as well. Uh, we also get to Hogwild 1996, which we very recently covered, also available in the archives. As a reminder, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash would beat Lex Luger and Sting there. And Meltzer would say after all this hype, the match didn't really have that much heat. It wasn't very intense. And it only got a star and a half a couple of days later. Cause that was a Saturday pay-per-view sting and Lex would go to a, a no contest with hall and Nash because, um, Nick Patrick would pull hall out of harm's way. And this is the first time we really can confirm that Nick Patrick is definitely a heel referee. August 15th. We got the clash of the champions, a triangle match for the tag titles. We got sting and Lex, the Steiners in the heat. And this goes to a no contest again. Uh, it gets a star in three quarters, but the big story is we're developing the NWO storyline and here in my own hometown, Huntsville, Alabama on August 19th, Sting and Lex Luger are supposed to wrestle Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, but instead they have a lengthy discussion and they all decide to join forces to take on the NWO at war games. 
Now, Eric, it was written in the dirt sheets around this time that the plan was supposed to be the horseman versus the NWO, but you guys pivot and throw sting and Lex Luger into the mix. Why the audible? I don't know that it was. I mean, just because the dirt sheets reported, it doesn't mean it was true. First off, um, in my mind, it was going to be Sting and Luger, not the Horsemen. The Horsemen were going to be there, but I also wanted i wanted to save Rick. I didn't want Rick to be the first wave, so to speak. I wanted to be able to save Rick uh, for later on as the story developed. So uh, I, I would disagree with the commentary that there was a pivot. It was really the original uh, story as it was laid out. The next week we see Sting and Lex take on McMichael and Benoit and they go to a no contest. Uh, and this is an interesting storyline because you know, you've got the NWO element, but you've also got the horseman and Sting and Lex all in this, uh, Hogan's going to come out and taunt Mongo, allowing Hall to ambush McMichael and lay him out. And then Nash comes in and uses the jackknife on Benoit and Scott Hall uses the razor's edge on sting and then spray paints them all. Any sort of uh, pushback from Sting, or is he getting that? You know, we're built, we're we're booking heat, as you like to say. And and I guess one of the things we haven't talked about yet, what is Kevin Sullivan's involvement here? You've told me before that what he was best at was booking heat. Yeah, I mean these finishes. Uh, I think Kevin would go in with a pretty good idea. I mean, we talked through it during the week uh, prior to Nitro or prior to a pay-per-view, whichever the case may be, we have a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do. But oftentimes when we got to the building, once we got there with Scott and Kevin and, and Terry, um, things changed. And oftentimes uh, what started out as uh, one idea evolved into something sometimes similar, sometimes quite different. Uh, so, I, you know, Kevin, Kevin was involved, certainly was involved. I was involved to, to a degree. Um, but those finishes, particularly with the NWO, took on more of a life of their own once everybody got in the room. And there was, you know, a couple reasons for that. One, it was a different kind of storyline. You know, the, the heat, you know, booking for heat, you know, you started out by asking me what was Sting's reaction to this. That was one of the things that I do recall was kind of a constant issue. Early NWO was because because we were booking so much heat and because we wanted the NWO to be so overwhelming, almost untouchable, almost unbeatable. It, it's traditional storytelling. We wanted we wanted WCW to be the underdog. We wanted them to be to be so beaten down that it it the journey for them to come out on top would take a long time and you'd really the you'd really want to get the audience behind them to see it happen but in order for that to happen it has to look like it almost never will and i mean that's a typical approach to any storyline whether it's a television series or a movie or whatever else you know act 1 you know your 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 baby face if you will character you know who he is or she is, you know, everything's great. All of a sudden, by the end of act, act one, they're devastated. They're, they're on this journey now that they may or may not ever achieve. And throughout the entire second, the beginning of the third act, it looks like it's never going to happen. And then at the end of the third act, boom, your baby face is a hero again. That's not an uncommon structure to any storyline. And that's what we were doing with WCW at that time. The challenge was for me was Steve 
in, in a very professional way. I want to make really, I want to make this really clear. You know, guys like Steve, um, Arn was a little more problematic. Arn had a harder time adjusting to it. Um, Lex was pretty easy uh, to work with when it came to this type of thing. Um, but that doesn't mean they weren't concerned because we were, we were totally shattering the formula. You know, babyface is a champion. Heel cheats and wins. Babyface gets his comeback. Those arcs were usually, you know, two, three week arcs at best. And again, and, and there's a reason for it. You know, most of the booking philosophy in WCW dated back to NWA. You know, in the early 90s, Dusty Rhodes, you know, Ole Anderson, Ric Flair, uh, Jim Ross was, in, was, you know, we don't ever talk about Jim's involvement in booking, but Jim was very much involved on the booking committee, you know, during the Bill Watts era and the Dusty Rhodes era and, and a lot of those eras uh, prior to me taking over, obviously. Um, and a lot of that booking mentality came out of the South. And a lot of the booking in the South was more or less a weekly booking strategy because they were weekly territories. Unlike the Midwest, which was a monthly territory, um, people were more used to writing stories that were very short term and where the baby faces would get their comeback quickly and always look good. Well, with the NWO, that changed. And you know, the NWO would get their heat for an extended period of time during this time. And, and it was a totally new way of doing things for a lot of people and certain ones, um, had, had issues with it. Steve to a lesser degree, but he was concerned. He wanted to understand it. He wanted to understand it well enough that he could perform to the best of his ability within that storyline, but it was completely different than what everybody was doing at the time. So it was, it was a challenge. Well, let's talk about, uh, September 2nd, we see Steiners beat sting and Lex in 39 seconds by DQ. Of course, this is because referee Nick Patrick is there and there's a limo. Um, DiBiase gets out of the limo and it's shown here that he is with the NWO and he makes that very clear and sting throws a, uh, a rock or a brick through the limo window and they drive off and then they steal a police car and chase them down the freeway. The fuck is this? You know, I just watched that episode about a week ago, not even a week ago, um, as a watch along. So I remember this one pretty vividly. Uh, it was a swerve. There was nobody in the limo, but chasing them in a police car. <laughs> I, you know what I did? You know what I said? I, 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 I said, can you imagine? You know, if that was real now, I'm busting my own balls here because I tried to, I, I tried to integrate as much reality and everything we did as possible. So I'm looking at that scene after, you know, I'm watching it 20 years after the fact and I'm busting my own balls here. And I said, yeah, can you imagine, you know, it, it, these two guys steal a police car? Well, if that were really going to happen, right, the cop would have grabbed his radio that he's wearing on his shirt or, you know, on his shoulder and reported that and a bunch of cops would have pulled that car over. And he would have pulled that thing over, and here's Sting in his – I think he was wearing red tights that night, right? No shirt on, face paint. Then you got Lex Luger in the car. And I can just imagine what the cops were thinking. It's like, are you guys on your way to a club or 
what? <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, that was a little ridiculous, but it's. I guess it. It was an attempt to show just how hot Sting and Lex were, and how they ignored their better judgment and stole the cop car. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. Oh gosh. Um, so well, Tim, are you glad we could laugh about it now? Oh, absolutely. And, and here's the knowing thing. it's knowing it still worked. It, it still worked, right? We still made a lot of money with this angle. Nobody said, "Fuck it, I'm not going to watch this NWO shit anymore because Sting and Lex stole the cop car." This is where shit gets analyzed a little bit too much. I mean, you 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 do have to analyze it, but no, yeah, I, to I a mean, degree, I, I'm not breaking I'm, it down. I'm just saying, what the fuck? I mean, come on, it's funny. <laughs> no, but I'm not breaking it down. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, it's, <laughs> it, it it was it, it was corny. Sure. All right, Eric, let's talk about the big angle. September 9th. This is what everybody remembers. Probably the biggest angle, maybe in Sting's career up to this point. Meltzer wrote of it. The announcers played the sting angle huge as if sting has just turned heel. Enjoy the NWO, excuse me. And actually they did a tremendous job of getting it over as a stunning angle. The angle was made more believable because they used the tape of stings voice. Of course, Steve Borden himself wasn't in Columbus, Georgia that night talking with Ted DiBiase about whether he could trust him as Luger came out and Luger's in the middle of a match against Rick Steiner. When Nick Patrick calls Luger to the parking lot saying something involving sting was going on outside and it's teased for a few minutes. And we finally see that sting has no showed the interview. And then we get a shot of the parking lot. Luger comes out and a fake sting jumps him, punts him around and they go off the air, leaving the fans with no hints as to whether or not it was actually sting. Brilliant. It is. Let's talk about Jeff Farmer, whose idea was the Jeff Farmer turn. <sighs> Jeff came to us. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, when you put Jeff in makeup, in Sting's makeup, he really, he had a lot of the same facial structure. He was the exact same size. So I think Jeff came to us. Um, Came to probably one of the agents, you know, Terry Taylor, possibly Kevin, um, suggested it. And then once we saw Jeff, you know, dressed up as Sting, it was kind of like, holy shit, this could be really cool. It was cool. And I think it's, if I'm honest with you, it's the storyline. I mean, I remember the limo thing with Jeff Farmer, the fake Sting, like it was yesterday. You know, when I got back into wrestling, it was because I was flipping through the channels and I see Hulk Hogan in all black and I'm still sort of trying to keep up with what it is. But that storyline in particular where, oh my God, Sting may be a bad guy too. Got me hook, line and sinker. Tremendous stuff here. I guess we should uh, talk about uh, what Meltzer was speculating might happen here. WCW can go on one of several directions for the pay-per-view show with the most dramatic being that the fake sting will be on Hogan Hall and Nash's team at war games and either Mongo or Benoit can join the flair Anderson Luger team later in the match. The real sting can show up and either protest his innocence with nobody believing him or save the day or the real sting can be put in the NWO corner and turn on him saying it was his own undercover plan. Or they could actually turn him, although that seems to be the least likely of all potential scenarios. 
All of this will cause a ton of speculation and curiosity over the week, but as Bash at the Beach showed, that has minimal effect on the buy rate. So let's talk about it. There's lots of discussion about who deserves credit for the crow sting, but almost all signs point to Scott Hall. Was it Scott Hall who added the wrinkle of the face paint and, and patterning it after the crow, or was it his idea, this entire storyline set the record straight on that? No, the, I, I, you know, I, I remember this very vividly cause I was so my eyes opened as to what Scott Hall was capable of, you know, and I love Scott Hall too. I mean, he's one of the guys that I see on the road that I really look forward to seeing, which I never thought I would say that. But when I see Scott today, I just want to take a minute to put him over. Cause I think, you know, for a guy to overcome everything that Scott has overcome in his life, uh, particularly the addiction issues that he's had and a lot of the personal problems that have led up to the addiction issues. And when I see him out now doing autograph sessions, um, taking photographs with fans, I see a guy who's not just doing it to make a buck. And a lot of guys do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I understand that. Scott genuinely enjoys and is grateful for the opportunity to be out there signing autographs and taking pictures with fans. He probably loves the business more today in a, in a, in a, in a healthy way than he ever has. He might've been obsessed with it more before, but I think he enjoys it more and he, and he loves it. And I'm so happy to see that now in 96, I didn't feel that way about Scott Hall when, when he was, you know, when, when he was either drunk or he was pilled up or whatever he was, he was a, he was a jag off. I mean, he just was not a pleasant person to be around and working with Scott was a challenge. It was more than a challenge. It was fucking painful because you never knew what Scott you were going to get. And he was a, he was a master at stirring shit up and stirring people up and just keeping everybody around him off balance. And that's not a great scenario with any kind of performer. And, and Scott just, he'd find a way to get under people's skin and just, and he would do it to entertain himself just to laugh at them, you know, laugh at how they would react. That was Scott 80% of the time, but the 20% of the time when he was clear headed and for whatever reason, (laughs) he hadn't been on a, you know, six day bender or whatever he was doing. And he was clear and he was really thinking. He was thinking, he thought of more ways to get other people over than he did ways to improve his own situation. And this was one of those moments. And I remember it was me, I think Kevin, might have been Kevin Sullivan. There were one or two other people in the room. We were in a dressing room. And Scott, we were all, and Sting, obviously, and we were all just sitting there talking about different ideas. And Scott just went off on this Crow character. And I mean, we went off on it in detail. Not only, you know, the scary man and, and kind of des- describing the character and how he would show up and, you know, he'd be in the audience and he was just so devastated because of what happened, you know, what, what the NW did to his beloved WCW and the betrayals that he'd seen taking place and just seeing WCW crumble and um, because of his history with the company. All of that was the motivation, as Scott described it, for Sting to be darker than dark. And to sit up there and, and try to, you know, 
um, petrify the NWO and, and, and just be that, you know, ominous presence that would show up in the middle of nowhere and do devastating shit. And, and right down to describing the character. And he referenced the Crow movie, which was popular with Brandon Lee at the time. Um, he referenced the, the Crow character in that movie as kind of the archetype for Steve. And Steve had seen the movie, so he really understood it and visually, and, and he understood the character because that that Crow character, the, the the Crow movie, or the character in the Crow movie, there was a lot of similarities. You know, we, as we like to say in the entertainment business, borrowed from <laughs> a lot from that movie. Um, so much so that I'm surprised we never got sued, quite frankly. But Steve saw it immediately and took to it. But that is 100%. Nobody will be able to convince me that anybody had anything to do with that idea other than Scott Hall and eventually Sting because Sting had to become that character and he, he did. He really, really understood it. But Scott Hall painted that picture 100%. I'm glad you brought up the lawsuit thing because I've always wondered how are they able to do this? And I sort of thought behind the scenes, you guys had some sort of deal. You're saying, no, that's not the case. You just rolled the fucking dice and never got in trouble. We rolled the dice and never got in trouble. Wow. <laughs> one of the few times we didn't get sued by somebody. It's amazing. You know, with Turner up your nuts about little anything that they didn't have an issue with that. Apparently whoever was in charge didn't go to the fucking movies, huh? No, but, but it, Turner was up our ass over a lot of things that had to do with WWF and, and doing anything that looked like one of their characters or saying anything bad about the WWF at that time. But I don't think anybody at uh, Turner Broadcasting really saw the connection between what Sting was doing and that movie. Let's talk about, and if, uh, and if they did, they didn't have a concern about it. Let's talk about the actual match. Who would have, I mean, I know you're guessing here. But if you had to guess, who would have helped put this match together? Because it is a pretty iconic deal. You see the fake Sting come out, and just as Meltzer had sort of guessed, uh, you do see the real Sting come out, and he attacks all the bad guys and then says something like, do you believe me now? Well, this happens after they sort of pushed him out of a pre-match interview, they being uh, Arn Anderson, Ric Flair, and Lex Luger. He makes his point and leaves the cage and the NWO, of course, gets the win. Uh, a star in three quarters is what it got in the observer, but it really wasn't about the match. It was about the story. I loved it. Thought it told a great story. What'd you think? I thought it was great too. I thought it was one of the most dramatic, interesting, layered stories that it, at that point had really ever been told even more so than the third man. I mean, the third, the third man was dramatic. It was shocking. Nobody thought Hulk Hogan was going to turn. There was a great buildup to it. There's a lot of things that made that moment, you know, one of the most powerful moments for sure in my career and maybe in the history of WCW um, and maybe in the top five or eight or however anybody wants to quantify shit in the wrestling industry, at least in the last 30 years. But I think this particular story because of what it led to and just the way it was executed and the layers within that story, I thought was really one of the best ones we've ever done. Let's talk about, uh, the fallout. How, how's everybody feeling about it? You know, it's the first time that Sting's really been in this spot. Is was Sting a guy who was sort of protective of his character. Did he get it? What was his take? 
Oh, he got it. He loved it. He, and this is why I think to this day, you know, I mean, if we would have gone back in time and been able to interview Sting, you know, three days after the bash at the beach and Hogan's turn, he might have done an interview where if he was 100% honest with himself, maybe maybe he was more disappointed than I thought, perhaps. He, he, you know, Steve kept a lot of – Steve was also a guy that never showed a lot. He didn't show his cards. He was not an emotional guy. If he was extremely happy about something, he didn't really know it. If he was upset about something or not comfortable with something, he didn't. You couldn't really tell. He really, really kept his cards really close to the vest. He was great about that. Um, but in this case, he was ecstatic. He was so ecstatic because I, he knew he hit a home run with a character. It was a character he could really sink his teeth in. Going back to the early part of this interview, where everybody wants to evolve. Everybody, whether you're an actor or or uh, a musician or whatever it is you want to do. You want to cut that next great song. You want to evolve as an artist, whatever your art may be. And I think Sting knew at this point that he hit it completely out of the park and there was going to be amazing story to tell. But more importantly for Sting, I think just, I don't want to say selfishly, but personally, he felt really, really comfortable with that character. He loved it. The next night is a big moment for sting. He comes out and cuts a huge promo explaining what happened the last Monday on nitro. He says that he was on a plane flying from LA to Atlanta. And when he finally landed in Atlanta, he turned on the TV and he was watching a replay, but it was a very convincingly done fake stinger. And he talked about his relationship with Lex saying, I know where he lives. I know where he works out. I could have just went and got him, but I said, you know what? I'm just going to wait and see what happens on Saturday. And he tunes in on Saturday. And what does he see? More people doubting him, which brings him to fall brawl. And he decides to go face to face with Lex and let him know it wasn't him. And what he got was more doubt. And he says that he was the mediator, the babysitter, and he did it all for Lex Luger. And he's carried the banner and given his blood, sweat, and tears for WCW. But for all these wrestlers and commentators and fans, to turn on him and doubt him, they can stick it. So he considers himself from now on a free agent. And he says, but that doesn't mean you won't see the stinger, but from time to time, I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. Who helped put together the promo. It is maybe the most important one of his career so far. Uh, I worked with Steve pretty closely on that promo. But again, when I say I worked on it closely with him, it was more, you know, here's where we're going. Here's what we're doing. This is the premise of the story. This is why you're upset. I mean, it was all pretty evident. It's not like I had to sit and explain it to him. Steve saw where the story was going. He understood, you know, the, the betrayal or the, you know, the lack of support or belief in him from the guys that, you know, he, he had been close to. That was the premise of that whole storyline. So it's not like we had to sit down for hours and craft that promo. Again, we didn't script things heavily back then, but I, I worked pretty closely with Steve on that one. I guess we should mention almost right after this, he jumps on a plane, he goes to Japan and he works four dates over there for new Japan. And obviously it's a, a talent trade that's been pre-organized with Masahiro Chono and, uh, Saito and lots of talent sort of intermingling here, including a match where he tags up with Lex and he beats, uh, Arn and Regal. But I guess, you know, 
what happens in Japan here doesn't really matter. The next time we see Sting talk after this promo, the night after fall brawl is January of 1998. It's over a year. And during his time away, sort of off camera, he's still working a handful of house shows through October and early November, usually in triple threat matches against Randy Savage and the giant. But he returns to television on October 21st. The imposter sting is wrestling JL and the real sting comes out and puts him in the scorpion. And this is before we get the, the real, no reaction, slow moving sting. He's still pretty animated. Like he usually was, but it is the first time we see him in the new look, which is the all black and white face paint. This is uh, really doubling down on the crow character. And this is what we all really remember him for. Uh, on October 28th, we got Booker T beating Luger by count out. Sting's in the audience. Luger sees him, goes out to talk to him, and Sting leaves. So Luger's counted out. And Meltzer would take to the newsletter to write, one of the reasons they're doing this angle with Sting is that in his contract, it's called for a specified maximum amount of dates in the year, and WCW only has a few dates left, and they needed him for the major house shows. So they're getting him off television and the minor house shows. This to me seems like bullshit. What say you, Eric? It's ridiculous. This is again, Dave Meltzer talking out of his ass, trying to convince the people that read his dirt sheets that he understood or he had direct insight information or some other kind of insight that nobody else had. And he was reporting on it and nothing was farther from the truth. So the idea was, you know, yes, he does have dates available, but for the sake of the storyline, take your ass home, right? Well, I've said this before, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And with this character in particular, we wanted him, we didn't want him to show up on every single TV. We knew we, we wanted to build this. I, one of the things I, I, you know, when I first got into WCW in particular, I didn't hear a lot of this when I was in the AWA, but when I got to WCW, there were a lot more people that had formerly worked with the WWF or new people that worked in the WWF and everybody looked at the WWF back when they were only doing four pay-per-views a year. Of course, everybody, you know, would talk about, you know, what a marketing genius Vince McMahon was and what a great storyteller Vince McMahon was. And, you know, I used to hear that and I, you know, I, I didn't have a dog in the fight, so it wasn't like I was taking that on as a challenge or anything, but I did, you know, try to understand what it was that's that WWF did so differently than WCW was doing. Again, WCW was more of a weekly territory. Vince McMahon was telling stories every week leading to a pay-per-view. So it would be, you know, two, it was, and there were only four pay-per-views a month or a year. So you would have, there seems like there's four pay-per-views a month now, but back then there were only, and prior to this, there were only four pay-per-views a year. So you had three months to develop a story. You had almost 12 TVs, 11 or 12 TVs to really build the heat and tell the story and make sure everybody understood why, you know, wrestler A wanted to beat wrestler B. Everybody understood the stakes. Everybody understood the arc. Everybody understood the the nuances of the stories going in. Whereas in WCW, again, it was just because of the nature of the way everybody learned the wrestling business just geographically. They thought on a more week-to-week basis. So everything felt a little bit more hot-shotted to a degree. And one of the things that I really wanted to achieve from the very beginning with Steve and the, and the Crow character was to build that out. 
I wanted to create a 12-month arc. I wanted that story to build for, for an entire year. And the only way you could do that was to have him showing up sporadically and intermittently. Because if you started using him on every TV, you just run the fuck out of ideas. I mean, there's, you know, there's only so much you can do 52 weeks in a row and, and keep it interesting. But the nature of his story and his character and where his, his head was at as a character at that point in, within the story was to show up you know, at the right time. And, you know, he, he would be gone for a little bit and then boom, he'd show up again. And it was a way to keep that character alive and keep it interesting without trying to over, without having to overexpose it. On November 11th, we would see Jeff Jarrett wrestling Chris Benoit and Jarrett gets a win by DQ because sting hits the ring and gives Jarrett a reverse DDT. This is the first time we've seen it that I know of. And it would go on to become known as the scorpion death drop. Uh, I assume that at this point, if you're going to have him do lots of drop-ins, you need a finisher that he could just put on like that, not necessarily a submission move, right? Right. It had it had to happen fast, and it had to come from out of nowhere. Let's talk about and the... I, and, and ideally, it, it happened with him coming up from behind you, even better. And that one fits the bill. November 18th is the day we see another layer added to the character. Luger's doing an interview and Sting comes out with a baseball bat. He shoves Luger with the bat, then hands him the bat and leaves. And now all of a sudden Sting's carrying a baseball bat. Why the introduction of Sting with a bat? He needed something. Yeah. He needed a prop. You know, I, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was a movie about 10 years before this where all the, all the characters in the movie were dressed. They were, you know, it was a gang and they were all dressed up like a New York Yankee uh, uniforms and they'd have their faces painted and they all carried bats. It was pretty intense, pretty spooky, uh, and very effective. And that's probably where that was derived from. Uh, let's talk or, that- or, 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 or borrowed. I like to say borrowed, not derived or ripped off or stolen. I like to say borrowed. I might be making this up, but are you talking about the warriors movie? Yeah. Okay. Came out in 79. You're old. Just throwing it out there. Okay, I am old. Thank you very much. <laughs> World War Three goes down on November 24th, and Sting makes a very brief appearance here. The Giant is wrestling Jeff Jarrett, and Sting comes down and gives Jarrett a reverse DDT, and the announcers would spend the rest of the show speculating as to whether or not Sting had joined the NWO. This was the second time Sting had attacked Jeff Jarrett. Is this because, much like Bruce Pritchard, Sting hates Jerry Jarrett? No, Sting really hated country music and that silly guitar gimmick. Sure. So th- that was it. That was all it. He just he just hated that, you know, hillbilly horse shit. Where did the idea come from for Sting to start coming down from the ceiling? Because that really adds a whole nother layer to the character. That was, again, um, you know, a combination of a couple people. I, uh, If I had to give the nod to one person, it would be Ellis Edwards. Uh, we were looking for, you You know, the, the question was, okay, what do we do with Sting that's unique? How, how can we be different? How can Sting's character be different than every other character? And one of the, the challenges that we started having about this time was, you know, we had a hard time explaining why there happened to be cameras backstage ca- capturing some of this shit because 
prior to this, prior, prior to 96, you didn't see a lot of it. You never saw it in WWF. You'd never really seen it in WCW. The only time you saw a camera backstage was doing a stand-up promo with Gene Oakland or Tony Schiavone or whoever, right, in either company. Now, all of a sudden, we were opening up the backstage areas to action and interaction between characters where it was more or less, you know, kind of a third wall situation. And there just happened to be a camera there. They call it Cinema Verite. But that had never been done before. And we liked it. it. And so did the audience. And it was really cool. And it really opened up our ability to tell stories and make them more believable, a la what we did you know, at Disney with Rey Mysterio and Lon darting him into the truck that got the SWAT team up our ass. The, what we found, though, as time went on, that, okay, well, how do you explain that the camera just happened to be there? And it's still kind of an issue, right? I mean, if you watch WWE right now to this day, you still see some of this interaction backstage. It's like, oh, why are they pretending the camera's not there? And number one, and number two, how does that camera just happen to be there? It's it's a little hard to explain, and you have to allow yourself to kind of just quit asking those kinds of questions because there's no good answer. But in this in the sense of that, you know, in discussing how do we how do we make it feel real? How do we explain it? How do we give Sting something different than everybody else? Everybody knew that, well, we can't have Sting coming down the aisle because if he's coming through the same entrance as everybody else, well, guess what? He's back in a dressing room, which means somebody's going to have seen him, which means somebody's going to tell somebody else, which means there is no surprise. So we were looking for ways, and you can't have them coming down through the audience. You can have them coming down through the audience every once in a while. But again, if you do that every single time, it's no longer that cool. So Ellis Edwards is the one. He was our stunt guy. And by the way, he still works for WWE to this day. Yeah, I just saw him um, last week. He's still there. Yeah, and he was really good. He was a really good stuntman. And and he understood how to set these stunts up. And that was really more Ellis's idea probably than anybody else the again we all kind of put the put it out there how do we do something different what's really cool and then it you know ended up with ellis stepping forward and saying well we'll drop him from the ceiling and everybody went what the fuck what do you mean drop him from the ceiling and then as we talked through it and ellis you know came to a couple nitros and he brought the rig and he brought test dummies and you know showed us that it could be done safely and then uh, had a couple other people that were stunt people from L.A. that were willing to do it to sh- prove that it, it could work with a live person. And then eventually we trained Steve to do it. Steve was okay with it? Not too nervous about it? No, he was. Of course he was nervous about it. But he was okay about it. You know, he wanted to do it. He knew it was dramatic. He knew it would be awesome. But, yeah, going up into the ceiling in an arena and being dropped down, you know, the first couple times, is scary as hell. I hate to be that guy, but when the accident happens with Owen Hart, is there a discussion about what to do or not do moving forward? Yeah, we did discuss it and we were torn, you know, everybody was, you know, and we weren't obviously Brett, you know, we felt badly for Brett and, and he was part of the team and there was a big consideration about that. We wanted to be respectful. Um, and we debated it a lot. It, it took us a while to figure out what to do and, and not to sound cold about it, but it, you know, we were comfortable that Ellis, we were comfortable. We weren't going to have that mistake, right? We were comfortable that Steve was safe. Sting was comfortable. Steve was comfortable that he was safe. So that wasn't an issue. Then the issue became, okay, 
Should we quit doing it out of respect? And at that point, it was kind of like, all right, what happens if a guy gets killed on a NASCAR track? Do they quit? Do they quit racing? Do they, you know, put restrictors on the cars and keep the speed down to 130 miles an hour instead of 160 or 180? Um, what happens if someone gets killed or paralyzed on a football field? You know, there, there was that kind of discussion, and it it came down to Steve. You know, I let it be his decision. Uh, I wanted him to do it. I, I let him know that I was fully prepared to keep going forward if he was comfortable doing it. I didn't want to pressure him, um, but I also wanted him to know that if he was comfortable, so was I, so that it really was his decision. And he chose to keep keep doing it, so we did. Well, I know that's been something that people have wondered about. Let's uh, let's wrap up December. December 2nd, Rick Steiner comes to the ring and challenges Sting, and Sting comes through the crowd, gets in the ring, turns his back, and holds his arms out, and then Rick clotheslines him from behind, knocks him out of the ring, and then Scott throws him back in. Rick hits him with a few punches and misses a clothesline, and then Sting hits him with the scorpion death drop. He picks up the baseball bat and shoves Rick and hands him the bat and turns his back on him, and Rick's about to hit him with the bat, but Scott stops him. So Sting leaves the ring, walks up the aisle, and at this time, U-Haul and Nash are on commentary. Sting stops, points the bat at you guys, and then walks back towards the ring and leaves through the crowd the same way he came in. Two weeks later, Sting is supposed to wrestle Rick Steiner, but when the Steiners come to the ring, we see a shot of Sting and the rafters. He walks away and then heads to the ring, and as he's coming down, the fans are breaking out a huge We Want Sting chant. And as Sting is walking through the crowd, we see another shot of the fake Sting walking through the crowd. Shivani doesn't seem to notice the difference, but the real Sting wasn't carrying a bat. And then we sort of go back and forth. Tell me about the idea of introducing the fake Stings again here, because you guys at one point would really overdose on this fake Sting angle to the point that there are dozens of these things. They were over like hell in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Farmer made a great career in Japan. I think he might still be wrestling as the fake sting. Sure. And that's the honest truth. It it was working in Japan. We were making a lot of money off of it. NWO shirts were selling like crazy in Japan. It was working from a storyline point of view. I I agree that we probably overdid it. Um, But um, that's the story behind it. There's no nothing more artistic than that. We were making a lot of money with it. The big confrontation, you know, with the, where the stings are having a stare down and then the fake one puts a bat under the real one's chin. And then the real one pulls a bat out of his sleeve, knocks the bat out. Uh, it's a pretty cool deal, man. Um, of course the scorpion death drop comes for the fake sting. Tony yells, he just creamed him. And then Rick throws the bat back to Sting, and he leaves through the crowd. So we've proven that even though he says he's a free agent, he's sort of on WCW's side. And at the end of the show, we see a huge fight with the NWO and WCW guys, and Sting comes out, and everyone stops fighting to see what he'll do. Arn Anderson and Steve McMichael both attack Sting. Sting beats him up, and then Mysterio jumps on Sting's back and was flipped off, and then Sting just walks out. And fans are reacting bigger and bigger and bigger, And it feels like after having to sort of take a back seat to Hogan and Savage, oddly, as we wrap up 96, he's in a totally better spot than he was at the beginning of the year. You rejuvenated his career with this entire storyline. Have you not? 
He did. We did. Everybody did. You know, it was a team effort. Um, starting with Scott Hall, Sting executing flawlessly. The team, Kevin Sullivan, everybody on the on the booking committee, National Hall included, working hard to make it work so that it, it was a great story. But, it, you know, it's it was really all about Sting. I mean, he executed to perfection. Well, and we're hoping to execute it to perfection next week. We're going to rewatch the very first Nitro because we're coming up on a very important anniversary. Next Monday, of course, is Labor Day, and Eric and I will still have a StarCast hangover. But you can tune in and check out the very first Nitro because that actually happened on September 4th. But before we get there, let's do some questions rapid fire from some of our listeners. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it. Stuart wants to know, was Surfer Sting as a return character ever on the table beyond 96? Did you guys ever consider going back to Surfer Sting? No, absolutely not. I think once once we made the Crow character, I don't think anybody could have convinced Steve to come back as that character, Surfer Sting. Fun question here from Jeff Pierce. Had Sting wound up as the third man, what would his look have looked like? I don't know. That's a hypothetical. You know, we didn't get there, so there's no way of, of, of knowing. I mean, at that time, he had already started to evolve. I I would guess, you know, since it's a hypothetical question, um, he would have stayed relatively similar to the character that we were seeing, you know, in the weeks leading up to that. Jimmy, there, would have been remnant, there would have been remnants of Surfer Sting, but he would have evolved his look. Jimmy wants to know, you guys are at the height of the Monday night wars. Was there any concern about staying jumping ship in this era? None whatsoever. I mean, I knew there, there was, you know, Steve was, he was really honest. I can't say enough good things about him and his integrity. Um, we knew that there were an occasional call or two and some communication going back and forth, but Steve would tell us and he made it clear. He was not interested in leaving. Keep in mind, he had a family, he had young kids he had a home, he had a business, and he understood if he went to WWE, there was the unknown, there was no guarantees, there was 300 days a year of travel, which he, he did with a young family, uh, he was not interested in doing. So while it was a constant awareness, I think on everybody's part, nobody was completely naive to the fact that it could possibly happen, you know, the, the level of communication that Steve and I had in particular, I was not concerned with that. Josh wants to know, is it true that sting had some sort of an injury during this crow angle? And that's the reason you guys came up with a clever way to let him heal. Absolutely not. There was no injury. There was no other reason than we love this character. We love the mystique. Look, when, one of the things that I learned and I learned so much, you know, 96, 97, 98, I probably learned more between 96 and 98, 99 than I did in all the years leading up to my whatever experience I had in the business at that point. And one of the things that I, I knew two things that I just believed in and still do to this day, passionately is story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. I believe you have to have those five elements. I mean, I believe that any good wrestling story, just like any movie, just like any TV show, just like any book, um, has to have a beginning and a middle and an end. And it has to be believable. There has to be structure. In order for a story to be a good story, there has to be structure to it. 
and and it has to follow a certain formula in order to get the audience to engage. I believe that more now than I ever have. Um, but I also I believe just as much that the real key to getting a storyline hot or or an angle hot is to get people asking questions. If, if you can get them to ask themselves, sometimes it's subconsciously, sometimes it's, you know, water cooler talk or in an office or whatever. Uh, but if you can get people to have a conversation that sounds something like, hey, Conrad, did you watch Nitro last night? Yeah. Did What, what was going on between – what's with the sting and the bat and why is he doing what he's doing? Is You know, if you can get people to ask those questions and to engage in the product by asking questions, um, you've got them. And that was really the driver in that whole crow angle. Everything we did was, what's he thinking? What's he going to do next? When's he going to show up? Whose side is he really on? Um, that 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 was the essence of why, in my opinion, one of the big reasons why that storyline worked so much, because we created more questions than answers. Fun question here from Johnny. We all know how fond you are of the Raven gimmick. Initially, did you have a hard time adjusting to the crow sting character? No, two different characters. There's no similarity whatsoever. And the, this, and, and, you know, with all due respect to, to Raven, it, the sting story had a premise. There was a reason there was betrayal. There was disappointment. You know, there, there was a reason for him to be that dark brooding character. And it wasn't just a miserable, depressed guy. You know, there was a reason for it. And, and vengeance was, you know, it, it, that was the stakes. You know, WCW was at risk and Sting wanted vengeance on, on the NWO. Um, so it had all of the elements of a great character, whereas Raven was just, dark and brooding and miserable for no apparent reason. And that's really the big difference between two otherwise somewhat similar characters. In fairness, couldn't you have given him, I mean, couldn't you have given him a reason to be dark and brooding? Yeah. In fairness, we probably could have. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no other way to answer that. I don't want to make any excuses. Sure. Going, going back, looking back at it now had, had that been more of a priority um, with him and us, you know, it's often up to the characters, the, the, the performers themselves to help us get to that point. Um, I didn't hear anything from Raven to help us get there. In fairness to Raven, I certainly didn't come up with anything to help him get there. Uh, Raven came to us as that character. Right. That's, that was him when he walked through the door. And that was part of the problem. You know, with a lot of the stuff that we did, it's not the talent's fault necessarily, but when you walk in with a character that isn't explained or well-defined or nobody really understands why you are the way you are, other than some of the promos that you're doing, and quite frankly, some of Raven's promos were kind of hard to follow. He understood where he was coming from and what the motivation was, but it didn't translate necessarily all that well with the vast majority of the audience. Some of them got it. Some of them love that character. A lot of people do. You know, people bust my balls on Twitter, you know, all day long. Because they love Raven's character, and I get that, and I I appreciate that, and I appreciate what Raven put into his character. But your question was, in fairness, could we have done a better job? And the answer to that is yes, we could have. 
know, what's funny is I actually, uh, Ravens at Starcast, And so I talked to him and he said, Hey, did you and Eric talk about me the other day on the show? And I said, yes, we did. He said, yeah, I thought that was you. He said, I couldn't tell cause it was a, a shitty recording, but I thought it was your voice. And Eric said something like I was, I was a miserable fuck or something like that. And I was like, yeah, something like that. And he said, he was right. I just, <laughs> I just thought, well, okay. He's like, no, you got to own it, man. When people, uh, you know, some of the things people say, you got to take, uh, stock and be self-aware. Nah, he was right. That was true. So there you go. So if you're a, a, a Raven defender, ask Raven, he's, he's on board with Eric here a little bit. Jeremy wants to know, and I've heard a lot of the guys joke about this, but this is a real question. How many of the other wrestlers were mad and or jealous that sting wasn't booked for any matches for a whole year? Nobody said anything, but I imagine there were quite a few people going, fuck, I wish I would have got that gig. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a sweet gig. <laughs> no doubt. It was a sweet ass gig. You know, the, the risk on our part was that the buildup was going to be worth not having them, you know, on TVs and house shows as much as we normally would. But, you know, you really, in the big scheme of things, it was a safe bet um, and a good bet. But, yeah, I can imagine guys that were doing 180, 190, 175 dates a year were going, God, I want a gig like that. I want that one. (laughs) Well, and we want you to tune in next week. We're going to watch the very first Monday Nitro. Get your popcorn ready. This is going to be fun. You know, I can't help myself. We're going to have to talk about Pasta Mania, the Mall of America. It's going to be a good time. Tune in next week. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? (laughs) You pay me more. Jeff Smith teaches on the sliding scale. (laughs) Those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.